For those of you who are old enough to remember 2008, the events that started with this rapid collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and other US regional banks was probably very scary. The market turmoil soon engulfed Credit Suisse, but things seem to have calmed down, or, or have they? Our guest, Simon Taylor, should know. He teaches finance here at CJPS. He also started the Masters in Finance program here, and soon the Global EMBA program. Also, he knows a lot about how to pay for nuclear reactors. So, <laughs> welcome, Simon. It's a pleasure to be here, comrade. So, Simon, what caused Silicon Valley Bank to fail? Well, whenever you explain these things, you can you can take the historian's view that you know there's kind of deep background factors, you know, the the macro position, uh, and then there's sort of the more medium term things, and then there's the trigger, the specifics. Um, you know, the big picture is that you know, we've been through a period of very low interest rates, and the interest rates have risen uh, five hundred basis points, five percentage points in the last couple of years. And that's quite a big shock to any financial system. And you kind of expect some things are going to go wrong when you have such a big change in interest rates. But in the case of Silicon Valley Bank, there were a couple of things about it that were unusual. It had highly concentrated uh, deposit base. It, its deposits are all, broadly speaking, Silicon Valley companies and individuals. And they had a big inflow of deposits, partly because a lot of these venture capitalists didn't have anything to do with the money temporarily. And it put a lot of that money into government bonds. And, you know, that isn't a bad idea in principle. But the problem is that those government bonds lost value when interest rates rose. And, you know, this didn't happen overnight. It happened over a period of time. But it did lead to uh, a, a known and identified risk in, uh, in the balance sheet. And what triggered the actual outflow of funds, the run, you know, the traditional run on the bank, was that it was actually the, the company trying to raise capital in realizing they, they did need extra funding. And the way they did it, in effect, drew attention to the fact that they had a problem. And really, over the space of the next day or so, uh, deposits left the bank at such speed, much faster than any other previous bank run, that the bank basically became uh, unviable. Uh, so, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a chain of causation. But, you know, at the root of all this, I think you have to say that the, the bank was badly managed from a risk management point of view. It was also not well regulated. I mean, we know that from the Federal Reserve's own uh, analysis. Uh, it was a little unlucky, but other banks were also unlucky, but they survived. Mm. It was amazing just how quickly those deposits uh, were withdrawn because they lost something like 25% of their deposits in one day. And there was forecast to lose another 60% the next day if the, it had not been closed. A lot has been said about how it was really all the, the role of social media, WhatsApp groups that really accelerated this process. Is this something that banks and regulators now have to worry about, this role of social media and technology? Yes, in the sense that everything happens faster than it used to, but we, we, we shouldn't get this out of perspective. There was a, a big bank collapse in the 1980s, Continental Illinois, and even in those days, there were electronic transfers of funds, albeit at the wholesale level. It wasn't something the general public had access to. And during that bank run, uh, although, I mean, I, I remember reading that the the bank hall itself was quiet. There weren't people taking cash out in the traditional way, but behind the scenes, 
uh, people were processing electronic requests for cash. Uh, so yeah, everything is faster. And in that sense, there's less time to resolve the situation. You know, the, the key thing is not to put yourself in a position where you're in a run. Once it starts, uh, your options become you know, really very, very bad. Mm. You mentioned um, the role that lax regulation uh, played. And in the wake of Silicon Valley Bank's collapse, people were pointing towards how during the Trump administration, the reg regulations were relaxed so that a mid-sized bank like SVB didn't have to set aside capital for unrealized losses. Was that, how did that relaxation contribute to that collapse? Well, the Federal Reserve Review, and they, they are obviously they're doing an inquiry into their own uh, organization's failures. But I think it's a it's pretty, as far as I can tell, pretty honest and frank account. Um, lists a number of things. I mean, firstly, it's clear that the the, the Federal Reserve's local um, regulatory uh, uh, kind of organization was understaffed, as is true across the regulatory system. It, it's a problem hiring, retaining people. Uh, who stay. So you know, there's, there's a lack of people to do the job, number one. Number two, it, it, you get the impression that even ignoring that change in, in the rules under the Trump administration, uh, there was a, a kind of a rather lackadaisical approach in that even when things were identified, there was no urgency about doing anything about it. Uh, and then the, the fact that the rules were changed so that, I mean, it sounds a bit bizarre, but a, a bank uh, is defined as medium size. In, I mean, it's a bit more technical than that, but that's the gist of it. If it has less than two hundred and fifty billion dollars of assets, which you know is by any <laughs> by any reasonable standard still quite a big bank, um, but the point of the rule change in two thousand eighteen was to uh, relax some of the regulatory requirements for banks under that threshold, and uh, Silicon Valley Bank was indeed under that threshold. So that took even more pressure off. The regulators in the sense of any urgency, even when they found clear problems, which they did, they identified them and, you know, letters were written and various reports were filed, but there was, there was no urgency in actually getting anything done. There was this sort of, it seems that they just thought it wasn't urgent and it wouldn't become so. So it, it, it would be wrong to blame it all on that change in the, um, the, the, the 2018 uh, re relaxation of the regulations, because it seems even if they hadn't changed, the regulatory, the, the regulatory process seems to have been rather, rather poor. Mm. Um, recently, Augustine Carstens, the head of the Bank of International Settlements, said something like the same as you, that banking supervision really needs to up its game. They, there needs to be more funding for bank supervision. But I guess he would say that. Um, do you th how do you think that banking supervisory agencies can improve uh, whether that's in terms of how they regulate, in terms of how they attract talent who can understand what's going on in banks? Well, it's partly about pay. I mean, there are a lot of people that want to work in these organizations. They believe the work is it's valuable. They're doing public service. But, uh, you know, there's a limit to what they're willing to accept by way of pay, particularly if they're coming from the private sector. And that's often the case. You, you need people who understand how banks work. Uh, I mean, it's even more of a problem with Signature Bank, which was the bank that collapsed in New York. That was locally regulated in, in the New York um, jurisdiction. And New York had even more of a problem in attracting and retaining people because the cost of living was so much higher there. Um, it's not unique to financial regulation. I think you see this in 
regulation uh, in, in many countries, including the UK. So it's always politically tricky to get taxpayers to pay for you know, these, these, if you like, civil servants uh, who most of the time don't seem to be doing anything. In fact, if they're doing their job well, there will be no crisis. And therefore, people think, well, what are they doing all day? Well, they're doing, they're doing their job avoiding the crisis. It's only when when you know there's a problem that we then say, oh, why weren't there more of them, or why didn't they, you know, why didn't we pay them more and attract the right people in the first place? If I may say so, I think Singapore has a lesson here that if you want very, very good, competent public administrators of any kind, you pay them very well, and then you set them high, you know, high performance targets. That seems to work very well in Singapore, but many other countries find that difficult to do for some reason. Mm. And of course, there's that other problem when if you don't pay people good people well they go to the private sector and then they know all the in inner workings of the regulatory agencies and you have this almost regulatory capture by the private sector is that right well it's a risk again not not unique to finance but it, it clearly helps if you know if you're a bank and you're trying to figure out you know how to work with the the letter of regulation yeah but also you know where where are the areas of potential vulnerability or what can we get away with I'm sure they would never admit to actually thinking that way. But having people who understand, you know, how the regulatory agency thinks, you know, what their priorities are in the U.S. especially, these are sometimes quite political organizations. You know, what is the head of the agency? You know, what's their career path? Are they looking for a big scalp, as it were? You know, there's all this sort of mm -hmm. stuff that that is is useful to know from an insider. Um, I think the pure technical side is relatively in a sense, you know, you, you can hire plenty of people that know what the rules are. And the rules are phenomenally complex. That's a problem in itself. But uh, I, I can quite see how people who, who've worked hard in a regulatory agency, you know, think, well, I, I, need, to, I need to earn a bit more money and, and go and work for one of the banks that they've been regulating. And I don't think there are very stringent rules about that. There are in other areas of government, usually at the senior level, you know, the, the so-called revolving door, you know, it, it, there are attempts to limit the ability of someone to move directly from being, you know, head of the agency uh, into uh, an organization that, that they actually were previously regulating, because obviously there's a conflict of interest if they do that. But at the at the lower levels, I don't think there are any any restrictions. And it's just seen as a natural career path that after a while, you know, that you move into one of the, the banks or the other companies that you're regulating and, you know, boost your salary towards retirement. So uh, if people have any questions for Simon, please put them in the chat or comments. I wanted just to highlight this comment from Vicky, who's watched several episodes already. I think Vicky knows you, Simon, from maybe a class quite Hi, some Vicky. time ago. Nice to see you. Well, nice to hear from you again. Hope things are good in Taipei. Yeah. So Simon, Silicon Valley Bank had all these problems. Within two days, it gets closed. So how did the regulatory, how did the agencies stop the, you know, the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank from having wider ramifications? I think the key issue that was seen at the time was the fear that other mid-sized banks, but as, as we've said, nonetheless, very large financial institutions would be under pressure if, uh, if depositors that were over the federal threshold for uh, deposit insurance, which is $250,000, if those larger, larger depositors feared that they would lose their money if the bank collapsed, then the risk is they'd pull their money out of many other banks. And indeed, we started to see that happening. And of course, that's one of the things that happened at First Republic, which also later got into trouble. And that's a very understandable concern. Um, and, and that might have been enough to tip 
quite a few banks into distress or even collapse. And you know, the, this is where financial contagion you know, becomes real. Contagion means essentially a problem at one bank gets transmitted to another, uh, which may not really have a problem, but the depositor's instinct is to think, well, just to be on the safe side, maybe I'll take my money out. And if a lot of people think the same way, then you get a cascade and uh, a whole load of banks potentially uh, either collapse or at least you know, stop lending at a time when um, you know, that would lead to a big, a big sort of reduction in, in, in bank lending. So um, I think that was their immediate priority. And the way to solve that, the way they, they did solve it, was to, in effect, guarantee all the deposits regardless of their size. Now, not everyone thinks that was a good idea, and it certainly has some long-term disadvantages, but it did fix the immediate problem in that it, it made everyone confident, or reasonably confident, that if the same thing were to happen at another bank, uh, that they wouldn't lose their money. So it, it, it more or less stopped the, uh, the bank run that was beginning to develop at, at certain other banks. I mean, you, when you say that some people were the un, uneasy about this unlimited kind of uh, guarantee, that's, are you talking think about the issue of moral hazard that this encourages well, risky behavior on the, on the, uh, from the banks in the future and also from depositors who then think, I don't really need to worry about my money in the bank. Is that what you're thinking? Yeah, there's two aspects to this. I mean, central bankers and economists in general tend to get a little bit worked up about moral hazard. Moral hazard means that if you if you have some kind of insurance, it comes from the insurance industry. Mm. So if you have insurance against some risk, you then become more more kind of relaxed about that risk. So uh, you know, if you have car insurance, you drive a little bit more carelessly, and you know this this is this is clearly the case. This is a real thing. Um, and you know, the, the insurance industry has ways to deal with it. So in the case of car insurance, you have what you know, in the UK uh, we call, uh, you know, in the US you call a deductible. Uh, I think most countries have some version of this. And the, the idea is to, is to impose some cost that you don't just drive carelessly because you still pay some cost uh, in the event you have an accident. And that way you kind of balance out the incentive. That's a way of dealing with moral hazard. So the argument is if you have no cost, or the expectation in advance is that there will be no cost, then decision makers have no incentive to take risk into account. Now, in the case of depositors in a bank, the average depositor is not going to go around checking banks' creditworthiness. They have ne neither the interest nor the means to do that. So I, I think this argument's a little bit overblown in, in the sense that if we were seriously relying on depositors to kind of do the work of checking which banks are sound or not, then you know, I, we, we'd have, well, we'd be back in the 19th century when we just had a, an awful lot of bank failures. That system didn't work very well. But there is, a, there is another aspect of this, which is, in a sense, slightly more ethical or gets at the wider question of, you know, when the, the federal government in particular uses its power to protect people. And I, th this argument has been made quite forcefully by um, two very, very uh, orthodox economists at the uh, University of Chicago, uh, and they basically talk about you know, riskless capitalism. It, it's a kind of the American version of crony capitalism. The idea is if you're a wealthy individual and you have all this money in Silicon Valley Bank, uh, then you get you, you get protected from your own folly. And, you know, is this really where where the federal government should be using its resources? I mean, it's the Federal Reserve. And in effect, it's part of the government. Um, and, you know, it sort of creates this this or contributes to this sense that 
rich people kind of always figure out a way to survive these problems. Whereas, you know, ordinary people don't necessarily. I mean, we saw this, you know, on a really major scale with the financial crisis. So I, 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 I have a lot of sympathy for that point of view. But equally, in the middle of a crisis, you don't have a lot of time to sit around and think about the optimal response. You have to fix the problem and then to some extent, you know, mop up later. But I, 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 I agree that if, for example, the depositors had had to forego, you know, even 5 or 10% of their deposits, uh, in other words, they'd got maybe 90% of their money back. That would have been a significant cost to some of them. And we were talking both individuals and and companies. And, you know, some people would have got fired. Some company treasurers would have got fired. And that might have, you know, that, that would have been the salutary, should we say, for risk management. Because clearly to put uh, tens, in some cases, I think hundreds of millions of dollars on deposit in one bank is not good risk management from a, a company point of view. Mm. And and yet they got away with it. So, you know, the, the, there is I think that there's some reason to believe that wasn't the best uh, long term solution. Mm. There is a question by Romit uh, on LinkedIn. He's got actually two questions. But the second question about how does a retail investor safeguard their assets? And I thought this would be a good time to show this thing that came up on Twitter right after Silicon Valley Bank collapsed. So for basketball fans, this is Yanis Antetokounmpo. He's a two time MVP winner. It turns out he has money in 50 different bank accounts, each one 250,000. Um, Simon, is this the kind of risk management that we retail investors have to do? Well, I mean, most of we we risk uh, uh, retail investors don't have the, um, the no doubt very onerous problem of allocating, you know, so much money. Um, but in a way, you know, Yanis was doing the right thing. He was following the rules. It, it must be incredibly tiresome to have you know, 50 different bank accounts. But he was he was looking at the rules and he, he was in principle right to do this. Whereas, you know, in the event, the people that didn't take the action he did were, were nonetheless, uh, you know, were, were, were bailed out. Um, you, you could argue that there are other way, other places to put your money. You don't have to keep it in bank accounts. There are other um you know, wholesale money instruments, which, I mean, basically when you have that much money, you are more like a wholesale uh, investor than a, a retail investor. So he did have other op options, um, you know, which I'm sure if he'd consulted a good financial advisor, they could have found other ways. You know, for example, he, he could have put his money into money market funds or even directly into government securities, which actually would have given him uh, both zero credit risk because the federal government, for, for all of its problems, remains very creditworthy. Um, and it also would have given probably slightly higher rate of interest, actually. But anyway, he may have had other reasons for wanting to keep his money in bank accounts. Yeah. The the second half of that story is that the club owner basically did exactly what you did and advised him to go find a, a, a financial advisor. <laughs> but we had yeah. a, a couple of questions on LinkedIn, which um, are quite, I think, quite general and quite, I think we need to look into this. You mentioned a bit about this. So Romit asks, how much of a global risk does the increase in interest rates in Japan pose to the global financial system? Um, and Tiffany asks, what about the, the confluence of factors, the deregulation, inflationary pressure, and global recession risk? Is all these, are all these things happening that are building up pressure in the financial system, as you say? And Silicon Valley Bank is, just happened to be the first one to get to get hit. Well, I mean, the, the common theme here is that the you know the global macroeconomic situation is 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 
quite strained and quite difficult. And it, it, it's fundamentally a, a mixture of the end, either temporarily or perhaps permanently, of a long period of low inflation, and therefore uh, the end of a period of very low interest rates. Now, Japan is, there's some specific aspects of, of this in Japan that go beyond that. But just taking the Japan question first, I mean, Japan's role in the world economy, uh, world financial system anyway, is that Japan is the world's biggest net creditor. In other words, uh, Japan has invested a lot of its money in the rest of the world. Now, to the extent that higher interest rates in Japan trigger a flow of some of those funds back to Japan, which is reasonable to assume, then that does potentially put pressure on the asset prices where that money is currently invested, which would certainly include US uh, government bonds. Whether it's on a big enough scale to have a big impact, that's that's much less clear. But there, there is definitely a question there. And it's the first time this has happened in, well, decades, really. You know, Japan has built a huge international creditor position. And if that were to uh, to change abruptly, that could be quite destabilizing for some international markets. That doesn't seem likely, but um, you know, no, nothing, nothing seems likely until it happens. I think the wider issue about you know, the, the, the global financial outlook, I, I mean, I don't think it's about deregulation. If anything, there was more regulation after the financial crisis. And I, I don't want to sound complacent, but the banks on the whole do have stronger balance sheets now than they did going into the, you know, the great financial crisis of, of 2007-8. Uh, it doesn't mean that they're safe, but they're safer. Um, I think the, the the bigger issue is that you know we, we're all waiting to see, uh, firstly, how China pans out. China is still in the early stages of its kind of post-COVID adjustment and recovery. It's very hard to interpret the data because you know it, it's such a unique situation. But uh, generally, it's not turning out as strongly as people expected. So in that sense, the the kind of wider mood has become a little bit more gloomy about the whole world economy. That said, the situation in the US has turned out rather better than expected. And I think people are more optimistic that the US can achieve uh, disinflation, which has now already you know, gone quite a long way, without necessarily a recession or possibly a very low recession. Uh, and the Eurozone is somewhere in the middle. Um, so you know, I, I think a world recession is by no means uh, certain. In fact, I'd, I'd say probably it's not going to happen. But um, you know, we're in an unusually kind of hard to read uh, situation right now. And uh, a lot of it really comes down to, you know, how if the Fed is successful in managing to get inflation down without causing a recession in the US economy. And that, you know, mm. I think that's looking possible, but it's too soon to declare victory. Mm. We have a question from one of our MBA alums, uh, Brian, uh, who's talking about China. Um, how will what's happening in China in terms of its housing, the real estate uh, crisis, which is spread throughout quite large parts of the economy, um, and these trade tensions with the U.S. How will that af affect the world? I and mean, I guess it's more about the financial system rather than the whole world. I think. Well, I think the real estate problem in China. It's not really a crisis. I mean, a crisis is sort of something that comes to a, a point of resolution, you know, it breaks. Like, that, that's the original meaning of the word. It's it's a bit more slow motion in, in China. And that's largely because the government has been managing it to some extent. It neither wants to have uh, a true crisis, but at the same time, it doesn't want to take the pressure off trying to get real estate back into some reasonable relation with the rest of the economy, which is a very difficult thing to pull off. 
But if anyone can do it, it's China because the government has so much control over the financial system. There's a kind of separate aspect of this, which is at the local government level, which may be a bit more difficult. Many local governments, uh, which have also taken on a lot of debt linked to real estate, uh, are you know facing really quite severe problems. And I I don't know. I I wouldn't rule out the uh, the central government allowing one city or province to go bust, exactly as happened in in the US with Detroit, you know, pour encourager les autres, to say, to encourage the others. Um, because there is a sense in which the federal government, it's not the central government, should we say, in Beijing, I think has been quite exasperated with the behavior of some of the local governments. But you know, the wider problem of real estate in the US economy is is in no sense resolved. And uh, I, I think that's that's going to be a drag on the economy for, you know, for some years to come. The trade war, in a sense, is the, the conventional trade war, if we just think about the tariffs that started with Trump and have continued through the Biden administration, um, in a sense, they're now just a fixed part of the system. They've done harm to both economies, but it's unlikely they're going to change one way or the other. The new the new kind of um, weapons or attacks, and I think that kind of language is appropriate from the US, such as restrictions on technology and in particular on semiconductors, um, I think go beyond what you would regard as a trade war. They are quite deliberate attempts to hold back aspects of the Chinese economy. Uh, the argument is made for it's it's for national security reasons, but there will be a wider economic impact. And in that sense, uh, that reinforces a belief in China that they are under some kind of uh, siege from uh, from the United States. And in that sense, I think the wider geopolitical tension between the two countries. Um, is a you know profound concern. I mean, it, it, it really is very worrying, and the the, the implications of that uh, will take years to play out. But they will almost certainly include uh, less investment into China, um, more uh, Western companies producing at least some of their their uh, manufacturing outside China. You know, the so-called China Plus One strategy. This isn't going to happen overnight, but over the next ten years, that could have quite a a significant effect on. Uh, on the Chinese economy uh, and on you know the wider kind of uh, you know, globalized economy, um, and you know the real risk is that the two countries get into something more than just a uh, you know a, a, a talking conflict. They get into a real conflict, and in which case you know I think the situation is very bad indeed. We have to hope that doesn't. That's, so you know that's the worst case scenario, and I think the, the key hope is that that doesn't happen. Yes, uh, I don't even want to think about that worst case scenario, so to speak. But a lot of the questions have been about um, these big macro factors. Uh, there's been years of quantitative easing. Interest rates are going up. Inflation is also going up. So where do you see the next pressure point in the financial system? Where is it a particular region? Is it particular kinds of financial institutions that are going to get hurt next? Well, debt levels around the world are higher than they've ever been. I mean, that's that's the starting point. So unfortunately, they're high in a lot of different places and that can take, that, that poses different, different threats in different ways. Uh, the threat from high debt in low income countries is more a threat to those countries themselves in the sense that they are, they're, they're the ones that will pay the price. Uh, and we, we know that that's happened before. Um, and you know, debt problems lead to uh, having to divert spending from, you know, useful things in the economy to debt service. 
if you actually default on the debt, which a number of countries have, and there may be more to come, uh, you know, the situation is, is, is that much worse. But those countries are not big enough, to put it crudely, or economically big enough to pose a kind of systemic threat. The, I think the two big debt problems are the US and China. Uh, you know, we've just talked about, about China. Um, the, the bigger problem in the future is the US. Um, it's been known for years that the US is on a long-term path of unsustainable uh, federal debt. Uh, we know that because the Congressional Budget Office, which is a nonpartisan organization that reports to Congress, not to the uh, not to the president, produces uh, long-term forecasts every year, and they always go up. And now they're going up even more quickly because with higher interest rates, the debt service burden gets bigger. And the risk is that you, you get to the point which previously many lower-income countries have where you're having to borrow just to pay the interest. This, this is the road to ruin. Now, the US is not there yet. It's just that currently, I think it's difficult to see the US dealing with this because politically, it seems that you have one party which is absolutely, resolutely opposed to raising taxes. And you have another party which is basically resolutely opposed to cutting spending, putting it crudely. And therefore, um, nobody, <laughs> you know, there's no deal to be done. Uh, so exactly when this turns into a problem is very hard to, to, to tell. You know, when do the markets start thinking, you know what, if I take out a 10-year bond from the US, am I really sure in year 10 that they're still going to pay the money back? Yes, they will pay the money back in dollars because they can print dollars, but will the dollars be worth the same in today's money? You know, that's, that's the real concern. I don't think this is imminent, but I, you're starting to see people who are not the traditional, you know, debt-worry people, you know, very kind of mainstream sensible economists, I would say, beginning to start worrying about this because you know, once you get close enough to the cliff edge, it becomes really hard to fix things without very, very uh, difficult uh, decisions like much higher taxes or big cuts in spending, which become politically even more difficult. So I, I think that that's a problem that um, will happen sooner or later uh, unless, unless something changes. And currently it's difficult to see that happening. Mm. We had a question uh, that came before the show from one of our Enfilin finance alums, Alexander, who asked, what could be the next primary contributor to the next financial crisis? And he thinks it's AI. Do you agree with that? It's a very interesting thought. I mean, I, I think, the, firstly, every financial crisis historically has tended to have some common root. It's usually about somebody borrowing too much. It's usually about debt. It's typically the banks, but it can also be, uh, it can be governments. It can be the private sector to some extent. So the, the the question is always, who is it that's borrowing too much? And then, at what point does does that shift from being apparently sustainable to being unsustainable? And that that is the point where we get a crisis. I think at the moment, I mean, AI in one sense is permeating, what uh, has already permeated many areas of finance. So it, it could be, it's a bit like saying, you know, will the internet be a big part of it? it you know, it, it's becoming a general purpose technology. So in, in, in that rather trivial sense, I'm sure this is true. Whether AI will create or some, as it were, specific aspect of the crisis, I, I really don't know. I mean, I, I'm broadly optimistic about the LLM side of AI because I think there's, there's just growing evidence that this can really be a, a tremendous tool in, um, in areas like learning and teaching, for example. Um, and I think generally in creating 
interesting content and, and analysis, uh, you know, including medical diagnosis. There's all sorts of things that it, it seems to have the potential to help with. Um, I think earlier work on the role of AI in uh, things like asset management has actually been a little bit disappointing. I, 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 to the best of my knowledge, the research that's been done so far you know, has not shown any really transformational benefits, for example, in stock picking. It's been sli at the slightly more mundane level of um, uh, communicating with uh, with clients and giving better client service, which you know, which is which is great. But behind the scenes, um, you know, we know there are hedge funds that have been working on all kinds of clever algorithms, but of course, we don't know what they're doing because you know it's private. And we, we've seen things in the past, um, so-called flash crashes, which were probably caused in part by um, you know, algorithmic trading strategies gone wrong. And the possibility of AI contributing to something like that on a more serious scale, I, I think that, that's got to be a risk. And the trouble is it's very hard to police because uh, you know, with the best will in the world, I don't know how the regulators could even know what was, what was going on. So uh, I, I, I think it's a reasonable concern, Alexander, that you have. Mm. You mentioned the, um, the US debt levels going up uh, and it being everything working fine until it doesn't. So someone on LinkedIn asked, what would be the impact of all this new debt beyond stock markets? And should the Fed raise interest rates? to temper irrational exuberance. Okay, I think this is referring to the slightly more technical issue that because for several months, the federal government's been trying to, uh, well, save money in effect because of the, you know, the, the concern that there might, there might be a default. And a default goes through stages and initially, um, you know, they've been trying to hoard money, if you like. Now the expectation is that uh, with the debt ceiling having been um, uh, raised, that there will be a flood of short-term borrowing by the government, which is really catching up from the borrowing that they didn't do previously. And that that is likely to have some slightly disruptive effects through the, the short-term money market system. I think it's a relatively known and predictable issue. And to that extent, it can probably be managed quite well. The point is to try and neutralize any um, interest rate effects in that. The Fed wants to choose the right interest rate, which in its judgment is consistent with its monetary policy goals. And of course, it may be raised, planning to raise rates a bit more anyway. Uh, it doesn't really want these technical factors to distort that wherever possible. Uh, and I, I think the general view is that they can probably manage that uh, because you know, th this, th th they've seen this coming. It's unlikely, therefore, this would have any significant effect on uh, on stock markets, either in the US uh, or globally, but you know we should be honest. It's it's quite a it's quite a lurch in in uh, in government borrowing, borrowing very little and borrowing a lot, short space of time. It's you know it's it's another un unhelpful kind of uh, you know distortion in in a situation which is already uh, you know not not ideal. Mm. And if we think about what happened first with Silicon Valley Bank and then First Republic, etc., it quickly moved on to Credit Suisse. So was the forced merger of Credit Suisse with UBS, was that linked to the same factors that you saw in these U.S. regional banks, or was it completely different? I think this is something that historians are going to be debating years and years ahead because, you know, the, the sheer... Um, proximity and time of these things make you think they must be linked. And in the sense that the, the, the US bank collapses contributed to a heightened awareness of bank vulnerability 
and a general sort of nervousness around the world, maybe you know that did push Credit Suisse over the edge. But the, the situation is a little different. Firstly, Credit Suisse has had years of problems, um, commercial problems, regulatory problems, some, you know, certainly from the outside, it looks like some pretty bad management at the top and arguably uh, a, a culture which has been too, too risk-taking. Uh, that's certainly the view, I believe, that UBS holds because UBS chose after the financial crisis. UBS lost a lot of money and it was very embarrassing and they did a whole report. Their shareholders demanded a kind of inquiry and they they reined in the riskier parts of UBS and they they basically uh, strategically put the emphasis on their on their wealth management business. And that's turned out to be a very good move. And UBS, you know, is in very good shape. Credit Suisse did not do that. So a combination of the strategic choices they made, what looks like bad management uh, and maybe some bad luck, I don't know. But, you know, you put it all together and, and Credit Suisse has been going downhill for quite a long time. And you can see that both the private wealth clients might choose to take their money somewhere else. Now, that's not a bank run in the same way, but it puts the, the whole company under pressure. And then we started to see money leaving Credit Suisse as well. Now, Credit Suisse at no point breached its regulatory liquidity or capital guidelines. It was, at least on paper, still still sound or at least still you know, sort of uh, consistent with its, its, its regulatory rules. But I, I think the, the effect of the American bank collapses may have accelerated what perhaps was an inevitable fate. I mean, inevitable is a very strong word. You never know. But it's difficult to see how Credit Suisse was ever really going to uh, turn you know turn around from this long long steady decline and um, once that became accepted as inevitable uh, being bought by UBS is probably the only reasonably good option available to the Swiss government we have a couple more questions I think uh, firstly we have Derek from Hong Kong uh, who's picking up your point about this China plus one and the this great decoupling, nearshoring. So how does the concept of nearshoring affect the movement of goods between the West and the East? And what's the potential impact to consumer spending and confidence? Well, I, I think the East here is too broad a term. I think what we're really talking about is a shift of investment, a shift of economic resources, including production, out of China into other Asian territories, principally Southeast Asia, although some of it may also go to uh, Japan, South Korea, but it, it's mainly going to go to other uh, relatively low cost uh, locations. I mean, China is not a low cost location anymore. Um, and some of this has been happening anyway. But to the extent that this is risk management by companies with a certain amount of pressure also from governments, chiefly the American government, then you know we're talking about reallocation within within Asia, within East Asia, broadly defined. In that sense, um, it, it's not helpful for China, but it's, it, it is helpful for a number of other countries. You know, it's good for, uh, it's good for Vietnam, Indonesia, it's good for Bangladesh. You know, so in that sense, um, this isn't a, a shift back to the US. I think at the moment, it's difficult to see any significant relocation of activities, manufacturing back to the United States. I mean, there may be some examples uh, and of course, the U.S. is trying to build its own new capacity in areas like semiconductor manufacturing. But the problem is that it's way more expensive. I mean, you know, 50 percent more expensive, at least. So uh, on pure economic grounds alone, it's difficult to see that would be a big shift of.
production back to uh, the US. Um, but the, you know, the the goal here, I think, from a company's point of view, is that you know, they aren't under pressure to show that they have some degree of risk management if there were to be another shutdown in China or for you know any other reason that might make Chinese production uh, temporarily unavailable. The idea that this can be done on a scale where you replace China as the main place for large-scale manufacturing, uh, I, I think that's very difficult to see happening in anything less than you know 10 to 20 years. China is just so much bigger than anywhere else in manufacturing. But you know that, these things take time. So I think over the next 10 years, you could see quite a lot of companies adding capacity. And you know it, some of it's beginning to show up in India as well. There's a great opportunity for India here, of course, which you know, I think the government wants to wants to grab. But it, it's it, at least at the moment, it's happening quite slowly. And in that sense, it's not too much of a shock, I think, to the world economy. But it's um, you know it's, it's it's potentially unhelpful for China's longer term growth, which is already, I think, facing quite a few challenges. Mm. And then we have a question from an MST alum, Vivek. Uh, I'm sure our colleagues in the uh, accounting profession get this all the time. So Vivek asks, do you think the accounting or auditing profession needs to change to avoid another financial crisis? Well, I mean, because the the problem is nearly all of the bigger companies tend to be audited by the big four. So um, the the, the problem or a problem is, you know, a high level of concentration in in auditing by the big four and big big companies of every kind, not just financial institutions, don't want to uh, be audited by anyone else for fear that that's sending a signal that there's somehow there's a quality issue. This is something that the UK government's been wrestling with because there have been a number of quite high-profile failures of companies in the in the UK where the auditors were indeed members of the big four, uh, one or two in particular, but I won't name them. And, you know, th- there's been a lot of argument about how to fix this, how to introduce more competition, uh, how to somehow raise the status of the second tier auditors that are technically probably completely competent, but they are a lot smaller. And I think it's a really tricky question. I'm not sure anyone's really come up with a credible answer yet. I mean, clearly you want to improve the performance of the big four. I think there have been too many, um, well, scandals, let's, let's be honest, too many scandals to 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 basically say that, you know, they've just been a bit unlucky. They do seem to have some systematic weaknesses in their process. But quite how you how you fix that uh, is unclear. You know, we've seen an attempt to break up, uh, you know, one of the big four into, you know, break, separate audit and consulting. And, and we've seen it opposed by the, the, the organization's own employees. So it's, it's a really tricky one. And unfortunately, auditors matter. Uh, we all rely on their information. And uh, they're a very important part of, of the system. If you can't rely on the audit, then, you know, we're, we're all basically uh, going around with, uh, you know, with dark glasses on and can't see what's ahead of us. Well, Simon, I'm going to have the last question. And I know you're a faculty member here. You've marked countless assignments. So I want to ask you, can you give a grade to the Fed and the Swiss authorities' response to this banking crisis? What grade will they get? Uh, are we using U.S. scale or, or the Cambridge scale? Oh, as you know, U.S. scale, everyone gets an A, at least at the Ivy yeah. League anyway. Um, no, I, I mean, on the U, OK, the Cambridge scale is sort of a little bit harsher. Um, 70 is a good grade, very good grade. I, I would say I would give them kind of low 60s in the case of the Fed. I think I don't think they haven't done a bad job, but I, I, I think 
the process of regulation has not been as good as it should be. And I think the, uh, you know, the idea of just in effect open-ended uh, protection of all deposits is the wrong way to go. And we may yet see them come up with a, uh, a new approach, but the question is, will it be credible? Because everyone will assume in the next crisis that all deposits will be, will be guaranteed. I think that's, that's not ideal. So I give them kind of low 60s, like you know, middling 2-1 maybe sort of grade. Um, in the case of Switzerland, I think given where they got to, I don't think they had any, any alternative. Um, the, the, the question is, what could the Swiss government or the regulators, the Swiss National Bank, have done earlier to prevent Credit Suisse in this long downward spiral? I think we sometimes overestimate what regulators can do. So again, I think I'd give them a kind of a similar, you know, mediocre, not, not bad grade. Um, but I, I don't I don't want to leave people with the impression that I think regulators can save the world. I mean, they are there as a backstop. Uh, what we really need is good, competent decision making in the banks in the first place. Mm. That's uh, you know you could argue it's business schools that have more more of a role to play there. We're the, we're the ones that hopefully can contribute to um, better quality management. At least it would be nice to think so. So there you have it. The U.S. and the Swiss are not going to be going up and getting their distinctions at the end of the year from Simon. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Simon, for sharing your thoughts. Thank you to everyone who's been watching as well as uh, with their questions. The balance sheet will be back next week and it's a double header. So first we have on Thursday, a different time than usual, the 15th of June, we've got um, one of our alums, Sam Cole, who has started a, VR, started a VR company and was actually featured by Meta in some of their launches before. He'll join us to talk about uh, the VR AR landscape as Apple's new Vision Pro headset, is that really the future or is that going to be a very expensive flop? And on Friday, in our regular time, 12.45 UK, we'll have one of Simon's colleagues, Bang Nguyen, who'll be talking about digital currencies. Is this a solution really looking for a problem? So till then, thank you very much, Simon. Thank you to everyone and we'll see you next time.